Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story. On today's episode, we're going to learn about the classic 1955 Disney movie, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. To help us separate fact from fiction, I'm excited to be joined by author Michael Wallace, who is the author of the great biography called David Crockett, The Lion of the West. Throughout his prestigious career, Michael has won a list of awards that include the first John Steinbeck Award, the Will Rogers Spirit Award, the Best Western Nonfiction Award from the Western Writers of America, and that doesn't even touch on his induction into the Writers Hall of Fame of America, the Oklahoma Historians Hall of Fame, and his three nominations for the Pulitzer Prize. And there's plenty more accomplishments I could say, but you get the idea. Oh, and if his voice sounds familiar, you might recognize it as the sheriff from Pixar's Cars franchise of movies, games, and TV series. Before we get Michael on the line, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. Davy Crockett was responsible for the peace negotiations that ended the war with the Creek Nation. Number two, Davy Crockett was captured at the Alamo and later killed by order of General Santa Ana. Number three, the real David Crockett met a theatrical version of himself called Nimrod Wildfire. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll know which one is the lie. It's the one that we don't mention. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get author Michael Wallace on the line to chat about the history behind Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. Before we get into some of the specific details and storylines that we see in Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, I always like to take a step back and just get a sense for how a historian and author feels about the movie. So overall, what did you think about the way they portrayed Davy Crockett on screen in the movie? That's a two-prong answer to that question. The first prong is this. How did I feel about it when I first saw the film and first saw the TV shows? I was ecstatic because I was, you know, an eight-year-old kid, and my dreams came true. David Crockett leaped out of that big screen right into my lap in the personage of Fez Parker, and he was everything I had thought he would be. Buckskin, raccoon hat, and a big, long gun and, you know, killing bears and just bigger than life. So I thought it was great. I thought it was great, great film. But as I matured and grew up and became interested in history and, of course, developed this writing career of mine, I learned more and more about the true Davy Crockett. And that's what really sparked my interest in in writing a book. David Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, is perfectly great. If you're a big-eyed kid uh, sitting down and and watching a a rerun of it on the tube or or even reading some of the vintage books for kids about Crockett that largely came out when I was a kid back in the 50s. But it was also time to tell the adult story, the true story of Crockett. And my agent, my editors agreed, and I sat down and uh, opened a vein, as I always do in the process of writing, and came out with David Crockett, the Lion of the West. That leads directly into my next question, which is around how the movie starts. Now, according to the opening song in the movie, We hear that the year is 1813, and the movie refers to him as General Andy Jackson leading the fight against the Creeks. As the song kind of plays out and we see this animated arrow hitting a fort in the woods as it bursts into flame, kind of punctuates the war. 
And this is how we first meet Fess Parker's version of Davy Crockett in the movie as a scout for General Jackson's soldiers. Now, was the movie correct in showing that Davy Crockett was a scout for General Andrew, as opposed to Andy, Jackson's soldiers? Partially. What Crockett did during that Creek War, as it's called, uh, around the War of 1812, uh, was become a member of the Tennessee militia. And that was all under the command of General Andrew Jackson, or Old Hickory, as the Anglo population called him. The Native American population, the Creeks, the Cherokees, the various, the five tribes that were ultimately removed at Point of Bannett and brought to Oklahoma, at that time Indian Territory, his name in English was Sharp Knife. It wasn't Old Hickory. But he had some interaction with Jackson, but he wasn't, he was never constantly at Jackson's side or conferring with him and so forth. But he did serve under him, and he served in that Creek War. But he did not take a lot of pleasure in that war. In his experiences, experiencing combat and death up close and personal there, really made a mark on Mr. Crockett and uh, ultimately became the source of a problem that came to the surface many years later when Andrew Jackson became president. Another main character that we see at this point was George Russell, Davy Crockett's sidekick. Was he actually a real person as well? George Russell, played by Buddy Ibsen, was the sort of de rigueur in all of these type of films and stories. This conquering hero has to have a sidekick, you know. For every uh, Roy Rogers, there has to be a a Dale Evans or a Pat Buttram, you know, it. you just need sidekicks. And uh, really what he was was a composite character. He was a little bit of this guy and a little bit of that guy and, and served his purpose, uh, the sort of the Sancho Panza to Crockett's Don Quixote. That's a, that's a great, uh, great analogy there. <laughs> now, in the movie... We're kind of thrust into the war between the United States and the Creek Nation. We don't get a lot of context from the movie about what is going on. We just The movie implies that the United States are the good guys and the Creeks are the bad guys. <laughs> but of course, with any war, it's all a matter of perspective. Of course. Can you give us a little bit more historical context for this war that was going on that we see in the movie between the U.S. and the Creek Nation? Well, sure. During those years, uh, the War of 1812, which went on for a couple of years, we were fighting Great Britain, but a lot of the tribes were taking sides either with the uh, the new, fairly new United States or, or with Britain. And that certainly happened in, in the Mid-South and Deep South, where uh, most of all this conflict took place and over to the eastern seaboard. So... The Cherokee tribe, a large, significant southeastern tribe, trying to get along with the United States and the government, but also maintain their own integrity and heritage, as the other tribes wanted to do, too. They allied with the American forces, and so you had them fighting along with the the militias from Tennessee and Georgia and so forth against the Creeks. And ultimately what happened is there were many, many, uh, of course, Jackson and, and his troops and allies bested them all and eventually, of course, beat them into submission, hence the name Sharp Knife. But also it caused some dissension among the tribes and what it did for Mr. Crockett, this raw, lanky frontiersman who, as I said, was experiencing combat for the first time, it really troubled him because he witnessed what can only be called atrocities, you know, burning of villages, the killing of women and children, everything that every war is cracked up to be. And nothing romantic, nothing noble about war. It is just, to coin a phrase, hell. And that really was 
driven home to Crockett. He had no problem going out and slaying beasts in the forest. He wasn't frontiersman. He was actually a professional hunter. He was a bear hunter. He probably killed between 350 and 400 bears in his life. And he, he could do that, and it didn't bother him. But he was he had no need to see or kill any, or, or see anyone else killed. And that's very important because, once again, I'll refer to years later, and we'll get to that point, where his decision and how that war influenced him uh, came to cause the end of his relationship as it was with, with Andrew Jackson. Great point there that, you know, there's a, there's a the difference between the frontiersmen and experiencing war there. As you were mentioning that, though, uh, made me curious about how old was Crockett around that time? Well, let's do the math. I don't think this is giving the story away. Crockett died in 1836 at the age of 49, much too young. So Yeah, that would have been 25, 26, roughly, I believe. Yeah, right in there, right in that period, yeah. At, at that time, he, he was, and he was throughout his adult life, throughout his whole life, actually. He was a very vital man. He was very robust. He was a man of the American frontier, which started on the eastern coast of the United States and just marched westward. And by the time Crockett had come of age, the frontier was where he lived because it had, that invisible line had come to the Mid-South and was approaching the big river, the Mississippi, and it soon would be the Trans-Mississippi West, and we would keep going and going, the editorial we, until, of course, we hit the Pacific Shore. And so he was just about a decade ahead of that remarkable, interesting period we call Manifest Destiny, which started in the mid-40s, about a decade after Crockett died. And that's, that's of course, a, a whole other story, but he was one of the early foot soldiers, if you will, of what became Manifest Destiny. And it would have been interesting to see how he would have reacted, because, again, this whole notion that the Anglo population of the country was somehow blessed by this God who looked down and said, you have the Manifest Destiny, it's your destiny to conquer this whole continent. And everyone bought into that because that land can be ours and there's no one out there. Well, there were, in fact, a lot of people out there. A good hunk of that real estate belonged to Mexico, including Texas, in that whole western shore and the entire American Southwest. And from Mexico, from today's Mexico, border up to Canada. And, you know, it, it, it was just the height of arrogance. And Crockett would probably, I would predict, have not thought too much of that. He, he may have eventually gone out to California himself because he was gypsy-footed and he liked to keep on the move. But he certainly wouldn't have had the same attitude that many people had about all the many, many Indian tribes that lived in that area forever and ever, and all the, the Mexican citizens who, who resided there. Again, that goes back to his integrity and the fact that he just didn't want to see people die and not be treated as human beings. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. 
it'll really help the show. True story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, we see a little bit of that. At least I get this implication from the movie when we see Davy Crockett go against the leader of the Creeks in the movie, at least. It's a chief named Redstick. And we see this happen with a one-on-one fight where he tracks down the uh, chief Redstick and he has this one-on-one fight with the chief and he ends up beating him. But then Chief Redstick says he's not going to trust the the government because they're not, you know, he's not going to join the treaty. But Davy Crockett gives him his word that you can go home and live peacefully on your land. It's, you know, I'm giving you my word. They shake hands and the movie just implies, oh, the war's over. Everybody gets to go home and live in peace. And thanks to Davy Crockett's negotiation skills, he solved everything. It's kind of how the movie shows things happening. But I'm sure that that's not how things actually happen. Can you explain how that war came to an end? And was Davy Crockett involved in any of that? Well, no. I mean, that's, of course, the Hollywood, that's Uncle Walt Disney's version, and uh, and uh, that's all fine good to tie it up in a nice little package with a, a pretty bow. No, Crockett was not a negotiator. He did not have a famous or infamous uh, battle go to combat with a chief at all. What happened ultimately at the close of those hostilities, Jackson, of course, ended up in down on the uh, Gulf Coast and the final battle. Really, the war, the armistice was Great Britain had already been written by the time, but he didn't get the word in time. And there was the very famous and romanticized Battle of New Orleans, where he enlisted the help of the famous pirate buccaneer Jean Lafitte and uh, his ruffians. And they killed many of the, the British soldiers who were walking right into their musket fire. And, of course, as we often do in this country, that ultimately (laughs) ensured Jackson, years later, his rise to the presidency. We love to elect war heroes to office. But what the Cherokees were not counting on is that all these gestures about adopting the, the white culture and so forth would do them no good. They could accept the white man's God, take on his language, take on his lifestyle, even dress like him, some of them did. And they started a plantation system with cotton, and which meant they acquired slaves, African slaves, just like the, the white folks did. And guess what? When the time came, Andrew Jackson, who by that time was the president of the United States, and no lover of Indians at all, had them removed and taken off their land, their ancestral land. There was some discovery of gold in Georgia. and Well, we have to get to that gold. So the Cherokees, the Creeks, the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, the Seminoles, all had to be uprooted. And on a variety and many, many, not just one, there were many, many trails of tears taking these people from ancestral homes from their native land and moving them into Indian territory, today's Oklahoma. Many of them died along the way. They were marched off at point of bayonet, and on land and on watery trails of tears, they, they came here. But before that happened, we had Crockett rise up like really a hero, an unsung hero, as it were, 
to take Jackson on and try to prevent that from happening. And that story is very important and really virtually unknown by most people who aren't familiar with the true story of Crockett. How did he take on Jackson then? Or is that getting ahead of our story? Not a lot. We're going to jump ahead some years because what happened to Crockett eventually, well after the Creek War, through the rest of the teens and into the 1820s and so forth, is that he kept up with his frontier way of life and his wife and children and hunting and carrying on. But he also became interested in politics. And he had a a natural ability to spellbound an audience with his storytelling. And that led him eventually to hold local office and state office in Tennessee. And miraculously, this frontiersman was elected to the U.S. Congress. And that was a time when most of the people in political office on the national level were from the upper classes. So it was, he was really uh, a novelty when he came to Washington. But the way he's portrayed <laughs> in, in film is, you know, more of a country bumpkin. And, and he wasn't. He, he was an intelligent man. He was literate. He was a reader, you know. He uh, could really keep an audience, as I said, spellbound. That's what helped him politically. And when he saw what was going on with Jackson and Jackson's cronies and their move to expel all these Indian tribes to Indian territory, he stood up against it. He stood up against it in the halls of Congress. He railed against them in the halls of Congress. He told Jackson, please stop. We have troubled these people enough. Enough is enough. Let them be. And he really not only took on Jackson, but his constituents felt he betrayed them. These uh, wealthy Tennessee landowners, these poor dirt farmers, the squatters, all of them wanted that Indian land, and let's take it. Get rid of them. Put them in their own little place. Let them rot out there in Indian territory. And Crockett said no. And that was one, probably one of the most daring and dangerous moves a political figure could make. And it really ended his political career right there in Washington. And Jackson and his cohorts found a candidate to run against Crockett for another term in Congress. And he beat him. He was beaten, as Crockett always liked to say, and he was fond of coming up with memorable phrases. I was beaten by a one-legged man. He was beaten in Congress, and the Indian removal bill was passed, and then the inevitable happened. Then all those trails of tears became filled with the population from all of those five tribes and many more to come. Today in Oklahoma, if you go into a convenience store, a bait shop, a Walmart, and there's an old creek or an old Cherokee there, sometimes young ones, and you see a a cash transaction being made many times, and I've witnessed this several times. If the cashier, if the clerk hands them and change a $20 bill, they will not touch it. They'll say, no, give me fives or two tens. I've also seen $20 bills, especially down in Cherokee country and also in the Creek Nation. I'll see $20 bills that I get with an X right across Jackson's face. So to many Cherokee people, especially, and Creek, Crockett was their hero, one of the few people who stood up for them, and they've never forgotten that. Wow, yeah, that's definitely a very different story than what we see in the movie. Yep. Speaking of that, though, there's the I want to just touch on this real quick, because the way that the movie shows Crockett getting into politics is... 
there's a shooting scene against a guy named Bigfoot Mason, and he's a local bully. And you see a scene where, again, I'm sure it's just movie magic, where just like Robin Hood splits an arrow, Crockett shoots two bullets into the same hole, which I'm, I'm sure didn't actually happen. But can you go a little more into kind of his path from being this frontier? And you know, you, you mentioned he had local politics and then went to Congress. But in the movie, it shows that it was Jackson who really supported that move. Was that Would that not be true then, that Jackson wasn't really involved in Crockett's rise, uh, a political rise, I should say? No, he, he was. I don't think he was a huge super advocate. He was not a, a, a real paternalistic figure in Crockett's life. And yeah, of, of course, that shooting match it's very doubtful anything even close to that occurred. But I'll tell you what did occur, and it's kind of similar to that. What Crockett discovered is this gift of gab. He knew he could tell a story. He could just spin a yarn. And like every good storyteller, and of course you're listening to one right now, we all know as storytellers, with each telling of the story, it must get better. And Crockett knew that. And he could go on to literally stump speeches, and that's what that means. He would stand on a tree stump, on a hickory tree stump, magnolia tree stump, and gather people around him in a little settlement or village and keep them laughing with his stories. What he also learned how to do was make sure that there was plenty of good woods whiskey there to pass around and everybody could get a little horn full of whiskey and he'd give them a twist of tobacco. <laughs> he, he, he was literally buying their goodwill with nicotine and alcohol. And sometimes this made for a very amusing situation. There's one I talk about in the book and this often happened. Two opponents for the same office would often almost travel together. They were even known at times to even share the same bed at an inn. But they would go out and it would be a classic debate. One would rise and speak and go on and on. And then the other would take the stage. And they all had uh, their proponents there. And there was a almost a celebratory scene. You know, it was the same as going to a public execution or any kind of <laughs> event of that time. Well, Crockett always would rise and say, I'll let my esteemed gentleman who's opposing me speak first. He always let him speak first. And what happened is, of course, everybody gives the same speech wherever they go, the stump speech. And they have it almost memorized, or memorized. Well, Crockett did the same thing. He memorized his opponent's speech. And at one huge gathering where there were a lot of influential people in a, a very significant event, Crockett said, if you don't mind, let me speak first. Let me get my little talk out of the way. And the guy said, that's fine. So he rose. And soon he was giving a speech, and his opponent thought, wait a minute, and he looked up, and Crockett was giving his opponent's own speech, only, of course, changing it for, to make suited for him. And he almost verbatim gave that, basically, that same speech. And then he turned and bowed to the man and sat down. And this poor chap, what was he going to say? Get up there and say, well, Crockett took my speech. He didn't know what to say. So he got up there and had to sort of ad lib and blubber. And it was just disastrous. So Crockett used these ploys to get to Washington. But unlike Disney's Crockett, when Crockett went to Washington, he didn't wear his hunting gear. He, he didn't. He, he traded in all the buckskins and animal pelts for proper tailored suit, trousers, a waistcoat, a, a nice silk cravat, uh, polished boots, no moccasins. As a matter of fact, 
if truth be known, Crockett often didn't wear a coonskin hat. He preferred to wear a big hunter's hat, a Pennsylvania hunter's hat, which is a big hat with a broad brim uh, to protect him from the sun. And in my book, in the front piece, there's a, a very famous portrait of Crockett that he posed for in Washington. And he's wearing, they wanted to pose him as a frontiersman. So he had to borrow some clothes to put on, borrow a rifle from someone. But he's not holding aloft a big, or wearing a coonskin hat. He has clasped in his hand the big Pennsylvania hunter's hat. And at his feet are some dogs, some old hounds. He told the painter before he started, he said, if you're going to paint me, I need some of my bear dogs in the in this image. And the man said, well, he said, I have a cousin down in Maryland who has some fine hounds. He said, no, no, I don't want fine hounds. So the man had to send somebody out, and they went to the pound, and they went down into the slums of the district and brought in these old dogs for him. And he said, yeah, these are bear dogs. That was Crockett's favorite image of himself. And to shift a little bit, I must tell you that also Daniel Boone, who did not know Crockett, Boone was up from a whole different generation, really. He, truth be known, did not like at all animal hats, and he preferred a big hunter's hat. So (laughs) this is uh, just some of the details in, in Crockett's life that in his true life that uh, uh, seemed uh, to get lost and and uh, did not appeal to, to Mr. Disney when he's putting the movie together. He preferred the cliches, the stereotypes. Crockett always signed his name David. And, and a lot of people called him David Crockett, but a lot of people did call him Davy. But he himself referred to himself as David Crockett. He also was not born on a mountain in Tennessee. He was born on flatland in Tennessee. You could see the mountains. And I must tell you, and I hope this doesn't shatter everyone's image, he did not kill him a bar when he was only three. You mean the song is lying to us? (laughs) I'm afraid it is. That was actually going to be one of my questions, though, because those are the things like, I mean, it's catchy, so it gets in your head. You're like, oh, well, then this, you know, it's just kind of how it tells the story. Oh, sure. It definitely is. It definitely is. And, you know, when I told you earlier, when we first started talking about being a kid in St. Louis, sitting in front of that black and white RCA Victor TV and first watching the TV series and then going to the neighborhood theater and seeing the Crockett film and so forth. I truly was spellbound. The first thing I had to do was get a coonskin hat. And, you know, it was at a time when Dwight Eisenhower damn near had to put raccoons on the endangered list. So many of them were killed. Now they have these sort of phony, I don't know what they are, rabbit hair. You don't, you see these things in curio shops, but these were real raccoon skin hats. And by God, I had to have one and I had to have a Crockett lunchbox and there were Crockett pajamas. This is one of the first figures who inspired the whole merchandising craze. And Disney was very good at that. The only thing Walt Disney regretted about the whole Crockett episode in his life is that he did this, started with Crockett with a TV series that ran a few episodes and then ended, and people wanted more. So he cobbled things together and came out with The King of the Wild Frontier. And then years later, he resurrected that again with Daniel Boone. And who did he get to play Daniel Boone? Fez Parker. (laughs) Fez Parker. It didn't have to do much about wardrobe. He just wore the same outfit he wore as he, as he played Crockett. And that's why people are continually talking to me and say, oh, yes, you're the man that wrote the book about Daniel Boone. I said, no, it was Crockett. Oh, yes, it was Crockett. People get Crockett and Boone confused all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's the stereotypes. And if they're both wearing coonskin caps and buckskin, then, you know, 
They must be the same, right? <laughs> yeah, they must be the same. Crockett spent so much time in Washington, in New York, and Philadelphia, especially when he was doing his book tour when he was in Congress. He spent much more time in those cities than he ever did in Texas. Well, that's interesting because that brings up a point that I wanted to ask you about that has to do with how the movie portrays Crockett's family. In the movie, we see that he has a wife named Polly and two boys, but then he gets a letter and the wife becomes ill with a fever and then dies. But then his sister-in-law says that, oh, don't worry about the boys, I'm taking care of them. And then from that point on in the movie, this is right when Crockett starts to kind of begin his political rise in the film. But at that point, we pretty much don't see anything else about Davy Crockett's family. It's almost as if he's not even a father anymore because he never goes to see his kids. And uh, come to think of it, he never really saw his wife that much either. He kind of seems to not want to stay down in one place. How did the movie do depicting his family life? Well, his wife outlived him, as did his children. And to put it mildly, Crockett was not a very good husband. Nor was he really a very good father. I mean, he loved and cared for his family and provided for them as best he can. But one thing is true, he was gone a lot. And early on in his life as a husband and father, he was gone out in the woods. He preferred to be out there. And and then he was politicking, and he was gone all the time there. So by the time he left Congress, when... He was voted out and came back to Tennessee. He and his wife were estranged. After his death, his wife and one of his sons came down to Texas to claim some land that he had been promised by the rebels, the Anglo rebels of Texas, who were doing their best to take the land away from the Republic of Mexico. And and that's a whole other and very important story, which we must talk about. But so Crockett never was able to to live on that land he was promised, but um, some of his kin did. When Crockett left Congress and when he came back and after his book was out and so forth, he very famously said, and this is true, and he said it many times, you all can go to hell, I'm going to Texas. And that is precisely what he did. But it took him quite a while to get there. Because in the movie, after he leaves Congress, it's pretty much he hops on a boat and he goes down to Texas. Well, he didn't go to Texas on a boat. He went to Texas on horseback. (laughs) I guess that's true. (laughs) And let me just clear this up right now. The whole Alamo and creation of Texas myth. Tejas, the Mexican state of Tejas, now Texas, was definitely part of the Republic of Mexico. All of it, plus all of the Southwest next to it and so forth. The Mexican government, their new constitution, banned slavery. This is many, many years before we get around to doing it. That meant it was illegal to have slaves in Mexico. Most of the people coming into Mexico, the the Anglos coming in, were from the South, from neighboring states, from the Mid-South, and many of them were of a class, they were of the plantation class, and they wanted to start a plantation system in Texas to grow cotton, which eventually, of course, happened. Cotton became prevalent throughout, especially the eastern half of Texas. In order to have a plantation system, they needed workers, and their workers came from a slave force. The Constitution required that anyone going into Texas to become a citizen had to speak the language, join the mother church, and not own slaves. Well, a lot of them did the first two. They made a perfunctory move at joining the church, whether they went or not, whatever. And and a lot of them did learn Spanish. People like Jim Bowie and and Travis, the the young commanding officer later at the Alamo, and the rest of them. 
Crockett never learned it because he wasn't down there long enough to learn it. What happened to Crockett back in Tennessee is he heard from different old friends of his, sort of old drinking pals like Sam Houston, another Tennessean who ended up living in Texas and up in Indian Territory and a lot of times with Cherokee people and had a Cherokee wife and drank a lot of whiskey for a long, long time. But in one of his sober moments before he totally dried up, and he did, he corresponded with his old pal Crockett and said, you know, there's land to be had down here. We're going to take this land away from the Mexicans and we're going to make it into a cotton kingdom. And you come down here and pick out some land now that Andy's pitched you out of Congress. So that's why Crockett said, you all can go to hell, I'm going to Texas. And he had heard all these tales. So he went down with a whole posse of his peers and fans on horseback. But it took him a long time to get down there. He, he was living the last part of his life. He lived all over Tennessee, East Tennessee, Middle Tennessee, West Tennessee. The last place he lived was way up near the corner where Kentucky and Missouri and Arkansas and Tennessee all kind of get close to one another on Real Foot Lake, a big lake full of cypress stumps that was created by the New Madrid Fault, the 1811-1812 earthquake that made the Mississippi run backwards. It was a great hunting ground. And Crockett left there, and they made a stop, he and his entourage, in Memphis, and did a lot of good, hard partying and talking and bragging and storytelling. And they made several stops down in Arkansas. And in each place, he did, repeated his stories and told them about going to Texas. When he got down to the Red River, he went off with <laughs> an old pal, the father of the Santa Fe Trail. And they went off riding west on a buffalo hunt. And then came back. He went off with another guy a little further on, and they went on a wild bee hunt. And they're looking for wild honey. Got some honey. He traded some things off here and there. And there were actually stories coming out of Texas. Where is this great hunter Crockett? We thought he was coming down here. And they thought maybe he was dead or something. But anyway, he finally matriculated down through the big thicket in, to the top of the big thicket and went to Nacogdoches, where a lot of the leaders of this rebellion were. And uh, he said, I saw some land up there in North Texas that I thought was pretty good. Now, how do I go about getting a hunk of that? They said, well, you got to sign up for the militia. And he said, oh, God. Well, he knew what the militia was, but he signed up because he wanted that land. And they said, well, you're going to ride down. By the way, a lot of his entourage had left by this time, gone off on their own. They sent him down to San Antonio de Bajar, today's huge city of San Antonio. And there is where a lot of anti-Jackson people already were down there and didn't care for old Andy. So he moseyed on down there, and they were taking up a position in this old mission called the Alamo that became known as the Alamo. And the Alamo... Uh, has become almost like this Lourdes that Texans trek to this kind of holy place, this special site, you know, for Texans, for a lot of people, you know. But the truth is, Crockett had so much to do with that because he was probably one of the most famous figures to end up there. And the characters that were with him, the leadership, like Travis. Travis was a young buck, a, a southerner sort of a ne'er-do-well, blowing his inheritance. He left his pregnant wife and kids and went down to Texas. James Bowie, who was sick and coughing on a cot by the time Crockett got there, he and his brother Resin, who created the Bowie knife, they were two of the biggest slave traders in the South. And they were getting slaves from, who did they get them from? From Jackson's old pirate, Jean Lafitte, They'd bring up through the Caribbean, they'd bring slaves up into the port of Galveston. And the Bowie boys would get them there and sell them. It was, uh, you know, the whole story, it was all about slavery, basically. And when 
my good Texas friends, and believe me, my maternal side of my family are all Texans. And I've lived all over Texas. So I know wherever I speak about my braggadocious pals. When they say that God created Texas, I have to remind them, no, Crockett invented Texas. And it was his death there. And he did die there, and he wasn't necessarily the last man to die. Well, let me put it this way. He didn't die swinging old Betsy over his head. He didn't die in combat. He was captured. And he and some other prisoners were brought before Santa Ana, the commanding officer, the president of Mexico, a character. So another whole other story with Santa Ana. But they said, we should spare this man. This is the great hunter and botanist Crockett. And he said, we put the black flag up this morning in our charge. No quarter, no quarter will be given. And they bayoneted Crockett and put his body on the pyre with the other bodies and burned them up. And that was the end at 49 years of age of Crockett's illustrious, very colorful life. But what I would tell you this is on that date, on that cold morning in 1836, David Crockett perished at the Alamo, but Davy Crockett rode on in the legend. Years ago, when the Daughters of the Republic, these old blue-haired ladies in spectacles and sharp eyes were sitting there, and you'd come into the Alamo, you had best know that you were coming into a church. <laughs> I witnessed down there an old tourist coming in with cargo shorts and a T-shirt on, and of course, he had to have his gimme cap on. And he came stumbling in there, and those women jumped on him like a duck on a June bug. Get that cap off, sir. You were in a sacred place. And boy, he did as he was told. Uh, the Alamo's an interesting place to visit, and uh, everyone should. Now it's right in downtown San Antonio. Yeah, I was surprised. I actually visited there once, and I was... I was surprised it was in downtown. Like I was, you see, like in the movie, it's way out in the middle of nowhere and it's, you know, all this open space. And Well, at that time it was, but San Antonio is growing in the largest cities in the country and they came that little river and it's a tourist mecca. And I, I really like downtown San Antonio. It's tremendous architecture. I could probably live in that old Menger Hotel and every night slip down and have a small dish of that great mango ice cream. But that was another time and an, another place. And Crockett was right there in the middle of it. And, you know, the old questions always come up like, what if, uh, if only? And, you know, there are no answers to that question. And that's the story. You know, one thing we didn't touch on is the subtitle of my book, David Crockett, The Lion of the West. Where that subtitle comes from is a drama that was created, played in England, it premiered here in this country to big audiences in several big cities. And it, it was written up loosely about Crockett. The character actually was inspired by all the, the stories, the dime, well, they weren't even dime novels yet. They were you know, sort of pamphlets and little magazines, you know, all lies and made-up stories and, and tall tales and portrayed Crockett as this Superman, you know, sort of a cross between Paul Bunyan and Pecos Bill. And, all, you know, it was just as this character. Well, Crockett didn't necessarily rant and rave about that. I mean, Crockett had a pretty healthy ego, and he played off a lot of that stuff. Uh, I mean, he did become, you know, sort of a legend in his own lifetime. But in this play, the character who was Crockett was named Nimrod Wildfire. And he was kind of a fancy Crockett. He wore really beautiful buckskin. And he didn't just have a raccoon cap on. He had a bobcat hat on, a big old thing. It was, it was an odd setup. <laughs> And people didn't know what to think. What would Crockett think of this? Well, Crockett, you know, finished his chores in Congress one evening and went down with his pals and 
they were going to go see the Lion of the West. And folks didn't know what to do. The, the theater got some extra policemen there that night. They didn't know if there'd be a riot. What would Crockett do? Is he going to go in there and when he sees Nimrod wildfire, just tear the place up or get up and leave or yell or what? It was kind of exciting. Well, Crockett came. His was planned, and he was taken right down to front row. He was right there on the 50-yard line. And the curtain went up, and out jumps Nimrod Wildfire in all his glory. And the audience is applauding, and they look down, and not only is Crockett applauding, he rises there in his, in his nice coat and cravat and polished boots, he walks to the edge of the stage and he does a whole deep bow to Nimrod Wildfire. And Nimrod Wildfire bows back. And that moment, my friends, is when myth and reality collided right there on that stage in Washington, D.C. Wow. So the myth of Crockett really. It sounds like it really started to grow again, yeah, just in his lifetime, which usually I always have the idea that a lot of these myths would have grown after, like, remember the Alamo and, you know, sayings like that, where all of this started to grow and these tales start to grow after he's dead. But it sounds like a lot of it started before. Well, a lot of it did. And the Alamo is just the proverbial cherry on top, because as I suggested, he was probably one of the better known people to be in the Alamo. And so that really, you know, caused the Alamo to be elevated to a different status. And of course, remember the Alamo became the slogan of the motto for Houston and the others who carried on the fight. And that's often done, you know, remember the Maine, sinking of the Maine, which as it turns out <laughs> was probably very suspicious to say the least. That became a, a rallying cry, you know. Uh, we're very good at putting together these cries, but remember the Alamo was emblazoned in everyone's mind. And then in his death, even more, then they were writing dime, dime novels, and all kinds of things came out published about Crockett. And there have been many, many books written about Crockett. You know, the, the niche I have taken for me as a, a writer is this one, and this is what I'm known for, is taking people such as David Crockett and others and unwinding the myth to tell the real story, the true story, the better story. And that's what I did with Billy the Kid, Henry McCarty, on the Ides of March in 1881, when Pat Garrett shot and killed Billy the Kid, Henry McCarty died on that floor in Pete Maxwell's bedroom, Billy the Kid rode on. When Pretty Boy Floyd was shot and killed, literally executed in the cornfield, East Liverpool, Ohio, by Purvis and his G-men, Charles Arthur Floyd died there. But Pretty Boy rode on. When Crockett died, I've, I've already told you that. David Crockett died, but David Crockett rode on. I'm now writing my 20th book. It's about Bell Star. Another one. All of these people I've mentioned are so wrapped up in myth and lies and exaggerations and just unwinded. There are so many books written about Bell Star. So many. But I'm liberating her. So on that fateful day in 1889, when she was bushwhacked, Myra Bell surely died on that dirt road, shot off her horse, but Bell Star rode on. That's what, for me, it's all about, and uh, that's what I will continue to do. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about Davy Crockett and, and David Crockett and starting to separate some of the fact from the fiction that we saw in the movie. Now, I know there's a lot more that we could never hope to cover on a single episode, but that leads us right into your book that you mentioned, David Crockett, The Lion of the West. Uh, can you share a little bit more information about your book and where someone listening can pick up a copy? 
Sure. David Crockett, Lion of the West, has been out for a few years now. It was published by Norton, my great publisher in New York. And you can buy it literally anywhere. Of course, a lot of books people buy on Amazon. But in better bookstores, if they don't have it, they will certainly order it. You can go online. It's it's still very, very much in print, The Lion of the West. And uh, I hope folks enjoy it. Thank you again so much for your time, Michael. It's been my pleasure. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Michael Wallace once again for coming on the show. If you want to learn more about the history behind the real David Crockett, go grab Michael's book called David Crockett, The Lion of the West. But that's just one of Michael's books. As he mentioned at the end there, he's working on his 20th book, so there's plenty more great stories from history that he's written about. I'll make sure to add a link to that book and where you can learn more about all of Michael's books in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, Davy Crockett was responsible for the peace negotiations that ended the war with the Creek Nation. Number two, Davy Crockett was captured at the Alamo and later killed by order of General Santa Anna. Number three, the real David Crockett met a theatrical version of himself called Nimrod Wildfire. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with the end, number three. That is true. As Michael explained, the subtitle of his book, David Crockett, The Lion of the West, the subtitle being The Lion of the West part, that comes from a play where, at one of the shows in Washington, D.C., the real Crockett met a theatrical character called Nimrod Wildfire that was based on his life. Well, perhaps a more accurate way to phrase that would be that the play's character was based on all the tall tales written about Davy Crockett's adventures. That brings us to number two. That is also true. As Michael explained, the movie showing Fess Parker's version of Davy Crockett going down at the Alamo swinging old Betsy over his head is not true. What really happened was that Mr. Crockett was captured and later killed at the order of General Santa Anna. That means the lie is number one. The movie tries to make it seem like Davy Crockett was some sort of a peace negotiator that ended the war with the Creeks, but as Michael explained, that is just not true at all. That just about wraps up this episode. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is share how much time and effort went into creating the episode. Now, I know that's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this information. Maybe if you find out how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 25 hours to create and cost $32.19 in out-of-pocket expenses. And as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So that does not include the countless hours of my guest's time researching the subject matter that we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and website hosting costs. It also doesn't account for any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one individual episode. So, for example, I mentioned the website, the time it takes to maintain the website and things like that. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. We're up to over 40 minisodes that talk about how completely fictional movies depict history and even more exclusive content. It's all just a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Based on a True Story just a little longer. Now, if you're not able to support the show monetarily, no problem at all. I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time for the last hour or so, and I hope you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop onto the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at 
Dan Lefebvre. It's D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.